And I invite you to turn at this time in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we're on a series uh, walking through the book of Acts. And uh, that's found on page 1722 in your pew Bibles. Page 1722, we'll begin reading with verse 16 today, verse 16, so... Paul is now on the west side of the Aegean Seas. He's basically in Greece. And he brings the gospel to Thessalonica and to Berea. And I hope you get to read those accounts sometime. And then we, uh, we'll look at this, the account of Paul bringing the gospel to Athens. And that's where we'll pick up things with verse 16 of chapter 17 of Acts. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, those are his, his ministry partners, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, we, or, or may we know what is, what is this new teaching that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Then there's this side note. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. 
A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And this is the word of the Lord. Indeed. Friends in Christ, we just read the account of, of Paul witnessing to the Areopagus in, in Athens. And the question arises, what, what is the Areopagus or what was the Areopagus? And I love Luke's description in verse 21. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Sort of a bunch of do-nothings. What does that remind you of? Anything? It sounds a little like social media 1.0, doesn't it? Um, Sounds like the world of blogging, where people do nothing but talk about and listen to the latest ideas and respond to them with their own comments like they're going to somehow change the world as a result of it. But just like there are a myriad of ideas in the blog world, The same was true for Athens, just a a whole assortment of different ideas. And so many of those ideas that were out there that were talked about had to do with with religion. Religion. And it reminds us indeed of the world that we live in today, where there are so many different ideas, so many different religions, and in this world of, of information, we know so much about about religions across the world, about religions across the street, about what our friends and our neighbors believe. So the question, I think, arises when you begin to read or when you do read through Acts 17 is, how can we as Christians begin to witness in a world like that, in a world that's postmodern and pluralistic, in a world where people believe so many different things? How do we witness in a place like that? How do we treat people who believe different things than we do, especially people of other religions? Should we just, you know, sort of leave them alone and and respect their ideas, respect their choice of faith? Or should we perhaps, you know, have interfaith dialogues with them and respectfully hear what it is that they believe but really make no effort to convert them whatsoever? Or should we witness to them in a true effort to make them disciples of Jesus Christ, disciples of the same Lord that we worship. Um, what can we learn from Paul, do you think, in the way that he, he approached the people of Athens? We're going to try and answer that question simply by looking at three words today. Okay, We'll look at three words. The first one we find in verse 16, and it's the reaction of Paul when he first walked into Athens. We read that Paul was greatly distressed. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was so full of idols. Let's think about that word, distressed. Athens was, was actually the cultural capital of the Roman world. Okay, even though it didn't hold the same political prominence that it once did in the world, um, it did remain the height of culture. All right? This was the pinnacle of culture in the ancient world. The city was stuffed with, 
with art and architecture and poetry and philosophy. It was the kind of place that was awe-inspiring for visitors. It was the kind of place, you know, that would take, you know, the big, big red bus tours at least three days to see everything. But it was kind of like, it was kind of like the first visit you make to New York, right? And, and everything about New York speaks to you about money and power. When you visited Athens, everything spoke about culture, but to Paul it also spoke about idols. And Paul's reaction, therefore, was not one of awe when he visited Athens, but it was one of distress. Distress at all the idols that he saw there. Now, just a couple of things about that reaction. First of all, the word that Luke uses here for this distress in Paul's mind is a word that the Old Testament um, frequently uses to describe God's own reaction to the idolatry of, of Israel. Just as God is distressed, in other words, with the idols of his own people, Paul is distressed with the idols of the Athenians. In other words, Paul is so near to God, so near to God's heart, that it's almost like he shares God's own emotions. Paul sees the Athenians through, through God's eyes. Now think about that just a moment. As you look at our own culture, <clears throat> you ever try to see it through, through God's eyes? Are you ever distressed by what you see? And I ask that because it's, I think it's so easy to grow numb to everything that we see around us. Our translators um, tell us that Athens was full of idols. Uh, the word means actually something more like submerged. In other words, Athens was, was smothered by idols. It was swamped with idols. Now, does that remind you of another culture anywhere? I mean, turn on your TV sometime today and, and, and just watch the idols slither across the screen. Idols of sex and sports and beauty and power and achievement we run into these sorts of idols all day long, but I'm not sure that we even recognize them anymore for what they actually are. I mean, do they really cause in us a kind of godly distress? A little bit more about, about that word distress. It actually describes a very complex sort of emotion. There is anger in this distress. The word in the Old Testament is often translated as something that provokes the Lord to anger. The idolatry of the Israelites provoked him to anger. So there's anger there. At the same time, there's also a sense of grief in this word. I mean, God loved his people, and he was saddened by their running after other gods, saddened by their unfaithfulness. And so, and so both of these senses are, are present in this word. And both of those things, therefore, also come out in Paul's witnessing, in his declaring of the gospel. There's a sense of outrage at the effrontery to God's holiness, right? Um, in fact, he even at the end of, his, um, end of his message declares that they're ignorant. There's a lot of ignorance there on their part. 
But there's also a genuine sense of grief that comes out in Paul. I mean, he sees these Athenians and he sees that they're enslaved. They're enslaved in their darkness and in their ignorance. In fact, those two things, I think, come out in Paul's witnessing style. Um, In verse 17, we read that Luke, Luke describes the way Paul presents the gospel as he was reasoning with the people. He reasoned with the Athenians. He didn't, just, he didn't just stand outside the abortion clinic and shout down anyone with, with words of anger and hatred who, who dared to draw near. No, there's a compassion to Paul in his speech. He engaged them. He sought to better understand them. He showed them respect. At the same time, he didn't shy away from declaring the truth either. Verse 18, we're told that he passionately preached Christ and the resurrection. He didn't hold back. He proclaimed the truth as he knew it and as he saw it. So Paul, in a sense, was, he was both tender-hearted and he was also tough-minded. Tender-hearted and tough-minded in the way that he declared the gospel. And friends, when it comes to idols, we do need to be tough-minded, don't we? Because idols are not just uh, the totems that I used to see, you know, growing up on Gilligan's Island, right? They aren't just a joke. Idols really aren't a joke. Idols, idols are nasty. Idols fight back. Um, we didn't read it this morning, but <clears throat> at the beginning of this chapter, there's an account of Paul bringing the, the gospel to Thessalonica. And what he does there is he proclaims Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, the Messiah is, is a king. And, and even though, you know, Paul doesn't spell out the implications of, of that meaning, the Thessalonians got it right away. In fact, there's a riot in the town, and the riot is started because Paul is declaring that someone else is king besides Caesar. They picked up on the implication right away, Right? You can have minor politicians and you can have minor allegiances and pay taxes to those politicians, but you can only have one king. There is only one ultimate authority that we have to give our ultimate obedience and ultimate allegiance to. And Paul was declaring a gospel in which Jesus Christ is that deity. Jesus Christ is that kind of king. And the Thessalonians picked up on it right away. They understood Paul is saying we can't worship or we can't obey ultimately Caesar any longer. He's saying we have to obey Jesus Christ. And again, as a result of that, there was a riot. Okay? People don't let go of their own kings, their own ideologies easily. And that also applies to idols. Friends, idols are gods, and those gods fight for our allegiance, and they fight for our worship, and once they have our worship, they fight to keep our worship. They fight to keep it, and it becomes a battle to get rid of those idols. I've got something in my lawn, backyard and front yard, called Creeping Charlie, I've sprayed it um, with herbicides. doesn't seem to kill it. I've tried to pull it up. All I seem to do is, is kill the grass. I just can't get rid of the stuff. And, and I think 
it's a good analogy for what idols really are. You can't get rid of them. They, they, they get intertwined with everything we do and think, and they put up a fuss when we try to pull them out. There's a text on uh, two chapters ahead of where we are today, where Paul is bringing the gospel to Ephesus. And he's preaching the gospel there, and again, he creates a riot. Okay? And you think, well, what is this riot about? And it's about the fact that the Ephesians heard the gospel and they got the message. And the message that they hear is this. Paul says that man-made gods are no gods at all. That's the message they heard. If you declare Jesus Christ to be God, then all of our man-made gods must be no gods at all. Now, in a place like Ephesus, that was a real problem. The people who started the riot were the silversmiths, the people who crafted the idols, the actual images. And they immediately saw that if people began to worship Jesus Christ, their business would go down the tubes, their income would go down the tubes, their security in life would be lost. And so what happened? A riot was started. That's what happens when you begin to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Idols are exposed and there begins a conflict, a war of sorts. There will be pushback when we declare the gospel of Christ. And this, friends, is why we as Christians must be tough-minded So knowing that, knowing we have to be tough-minded, how do we begin to proclaim the gospel in a way that Paul did? Tough-minded, but also tender-hearted. How do we love people and yet, at the same time, expose their idols? Well, I think we can find part of that answer in another word, a second word. <clears throat> it's a word that appears in verse 16, 22, and 23, and Luke uses the same Greek word um, in each case for how Paul actually identifies the idols that are present in Athens. It's uh, probably best translated in verse 23 where it says, As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. So Paul doesn't just see them, right? He, he looks carefully at them. He considers them. Um, John Stott says, he puts it this way, he looked and he looked and he thought and he thought. He looked and he looked and he thought and he thought. Now, why do you have to do that? Well, because idols are slippery. They're not always obvious. The idols that are obvious are usually the idols that you see in the lives of people around you. Idols in our own lives are generally not as evident. What leads to a more balanced approach to exposing idols, exposing the idols around us, to an approach of truth and love when we begin to declare the gospel, I think it comes when we begin to look and look and think and think, not just about the idols of others, but at the idols in our own lives as well. Those idols often take a lot to begin to identify. And again, we have to realize that when we do begin to identify them, they're going to put up a fuss. They're not going to leave easily. Think about these idols. Do you worship things like power? 
or success or achievement. I mean, we see them all around us, but do you see them having any power in your own life, any influence in your own life? What if you look a little deeper? Tim Keller notes that, um, some of you will remember this, when New York Governor Elliot Spitzer, excuse me, um, destroyed his career by his involvement in a high-priced prostitution ring, um, David Brooks wrote something in a column at that time, um, something he called rank link imbalances. Rank link imbalances. And what he said is that some people develop their skills for vertical relationships. In other words, for improving relationships um, with their mentors, with their bosses, with people above them, people who sort of rank above them. And, and I think, you know, we see that, right? You see that in some people when they get into a work setting or when they get into a, a setting when they're, um, when they're around other people of influence, all of a sudden they seem to be able to kick in those social skills and, and they can flatter and they can show hospitality and they can, um, they can just do all of that stuff. But, um, but what Brooks says is they don't seem to put any work into developing the skills that are necessary for their horizontal relationships. The relationship with their spouse and their kids, and their family, their best friends. See, they've they've sort of made an idol out of advancement and success, and they've developed the skills necessary to worship that idol. But obviously, they don't think as much about the people on the horizontal plane. And so those skills, they haven't put the effort into. Friends, to begin to recognize those sorts of idols in our own lives, that, that, takes, that takes some work. Idols are not easily observable. In fact, often I think we need help to begin to identify idols in our own lives. We need help. We need someone to come alongside of us who is also willing to look and look and think and think about our own idols in fact, friends, I, th- I think if you're really serious about wanting to expose the idols in your own life, perhaps one of the best ways that you can do that is invite the people who are nearest to you into that conversation. Invite the people who are closest to you and ask them, will you help me identify and get rid of the idols in my life? People like your spouse, people like your kids, your parents, your really good friends. And then if you do that, you need to follow that up with lots and lots of prayer that you'll actually be humble enough to hear what it is they have to say. Because it's a really hard thing for people who love you to do, and it's a really hard thing for you to hear and for me to hear. But idols need a lot of looking and a lot of thinking to expose them. But it's that humility of going through that process ourselves and examining our own idols. It's that kind of humility that we need to begin to approach others 
if we're going to declare the gospel in a way that helps them see their idols at the same time. It enables us to speak from a position of truth and love. Now, the last word I want to look at with you this morning is in verse 18. It's, uh, Paul is called there a babbler. You babbler. Um, and what is a babbler exactly? I think we've got our own definitions for babblers. One day I was, uh, not too long ago, I was working uh, on a window that overlooked our little, ups, our little second story porch. Okay? And as I was looking out the window, I noticed that um, there were all these sparrows and birds that would fly into my rain gutter and they'd be pecking away. And then they would fly down into the grass and they would peck at the new um, grass seed that I had planted. And then they'd fly back up to the rain gutter and it was like just going back and forth. And turns out that's what a babbler actually is. Okay? The word literally means seed picker or gutter sparrow. And the image is one of, of someone picking up little pieces of information, little scraps of learning wherever they can. A little bit here, a little bit there. And, and that's what the philosophers here are saying about Paul, that he's a seed picker. It's a derogatory term. It's a, it's a mocking term. Um, what they're saying is Paul doesn't have any real knowledge himself. He just picks up little snippets of what other people are saying all around him. Now again, I think if we look at Paul's response, it's instructive. Because Paul doesn't, doesn't turn around and mock them in return. He doesn't say, oh, you call me this, I'm going to call you that. But he does kind of throw that term back at them. Because when making his defense, Paul points out the many myriad of idols that he sees in Athens. Okay? All of the idols that, that he sees around him. And, and he says they even have an altar to an unknown God. Just, just one more. In case they missed anything, there's one more that they want to acknowledge and honor. Now, if you think about that term babbler, picking up little scraps of information here and there and then trying to put it all together, whose religion do you think that really describes? Does it describe Paul's religion? Or does that describe the religion of the Athenians? Because all of those different gods come with all of their own narratives and you try to put those all together and you can't even do it in a way that makes sense. On the other hand, when Paul tells the story of the gospel, okay, he tells a story of one God. One God who made the world and everything in it. One God who made all human beings. He was there at the beginning. He will be there at the end. And he has given proof of this, not just to some but to all men, Paul says, not just to Jews, but to Greeks as well, not just to Christians, but to Hindus and to Buddhists and to Muslims. He's given proof of this by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, which anyone can go and check out, can go and study. Did it really happen or did it not? In other words, Paul here sounds less and less like a babbler and more and more like someone 
who has his story straight. Paul has one narrative, and it's the narrative of Jesus Christ. And it's the only narrative that begins to incorporate and explain all of the other narratives that are out there in this world. That's the way Paul describes or declares the gospel here. One narrative, but it's also one exclusive narrative. And an exclusive narrative, friends, is always offensive. By definition, it always offends because my story is true and yours is not. And that's exactly what we find here that happens. As a result of Paul declaring the gospel, what happens? Well, some sneered. They made fun of him, right? They made a joke out of him. In other places, at other times, it's worse. When you offend, you can be met with violence, persecution, like much of the church is today, even death. But we are called to continue to proclaim that one narrative in spite of it. We're called to be tough-minded, to continue to declare the gospel. But there's one other thing, okay? We're also called to be tender-hearted because that one narrative tells the story of Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus tell us? He said, I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You have to surround the one narrative also, you have to immerse it, should I say, in the love of Jesus Christ. We have to be hospitable. We have to be good listeners. We have to be kind and gracious, tough-minded and tender-hearted so that the one narrative of Jesus Christ can actually be heard. Let's bow together in, in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you. <clears throat> we thank you that, uh, that you have declared to us a story, a narrative that makes sense. A God who created all things, a God who loved them so dearly, that he came in the person of his own son and he died for that world. He took the punishment himself, a God of greatness and yet a God of mercy and love. And we praise you for who you are. We praise you for the story of the gospel that you have given us. And Lord, we pray that as we as we try to proclaim that gospel to those around us, we ask that we might be able to do it with the same mind of Paul, the same distress of Paul, anger that, that for some reason the holiness of God is not seen and not worshipped, at the same time grieving over the fact that so many are lost and don't see the truth. And so may we continue and always declare the gospel with a tender heart and a strong mind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.